Good morning. <clears throat> and so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. Thank you, Tony. We're going to talk a lot about context and the importance of context, taking the Bible in its context this morning. And I want to tell you that we are taking a trip to Israel, and we have just a few spots open. You can fill out a Connect card and hand it to me or drop it in the box on the way out if you're interested. And the reason we're going to Israel is to understand the context of the Bible better. So I think we have like three or four spots at best open. This is our last call on that. I just wanted to put that out there since today we're talking so much about context anyway, and that's what that trip is really all about. Okay, um, you see the warning sign behind me. You saw the yellow signs when you came in. You flip your bulletin over, your little blue bulletin, and you see the title of the message today. So uh, I think that you know, pretty much covers everything. I just I want, I want you to know that we, we're not uh, trying to make anybody feel uncomfortable. Uh, you can see the signs over here of what we're talking about. And that might make you or somebody that you have with you, maybe it's a younger person, and you have a younger person with you, and it's going to make them feel uncomfortable. And we don't want to do that. So we want to warn you now so that you don't feel like in the middle of it when all of a sudden it starts happening, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that. And then you feel like you have to get up and, you know, run out and ask God to forgive you for being in church. Well, we want you, we want you to feel free, you know, that you maybe slip out in the next few moments. If that's, we just want you to know it's coming. That's all. So for the next number of weeks, we're going to be on these issues, divisive issues in a divided city. They're very emotional. We're going to speak very straightforward about this stuff. And so we just want you to know that. We want you to be well aware of that. And um, anyway, that's, that's all I'm going to say on that. Uh, the only other thing I want to say is be patient. None of these messages stand by themselves. None of them stand by themselves at all. You'll have to listen to some of the things that I say, and I don't mean to come across in any kind of way this morning, like, hey, really listen to me, but here's what just generally happens is we talk, talk, and I'll say five sentences, and you might hear just two of those sentences and take two of those sentences and think that I'm saying something I'm not. It's really important to give a full hearing, to listen to what's being said here, and this message doesn't stand on its own. Be patient and, and all of that, because these are very, very emotional issues. Last week, we talked about rallying around the gospel. We said that Paul says that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ over here is gold 
and it's silver, and it's costly stones. And there's a fire coming, and the fire's going to burn everything up, and the only thing that's left is going to be the gospel. This is the only thing that stands. It's the only thing that's worth anything. It's the only thing that counts for anything. You come over here, and Paul says there's wood, and there's hay, and there's all these issues, and a million other issues. And he said, fire's coming, and there's going to be nothing left of it. They'll be totally gone. And so we have a choice as a follower of Christ and as a church, are you going to rally around stuff that is not going to stand at the end of the day when the fire comes, or are you going to rally around this over here, which is going to stand and last forever? It's gold, it's silver, and there's millions of dollars that we have put in this little treasure chest, so no, nobody rush the stage to get it, but you can either put, you know, you can rally one or the other, and Paul makes a very strong case all through Romans, all through Corinthians, all through Galatians, and even some of Ephesians to rally around this and not rally around that, and that's what we talked about last week. Now today, there's been a terrible misunderstanding, just a horrendous misunderstanding, and Paul talks about it in the book of Galatians, and we see this borne out in our own world in the United States of America. And the terrible misunderstanding is this, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for people who are not Christians or for people who have just become Christians. But Christians who are already in and they're already bought in, they don't need the gospel anymore. The gospel does not affect their life anymore. They've moved on to the advanced stuff. They've moved on to the meat of God's word. And Paul says, no, that's not the case that we absolutely cannot grow in grace and grow in Jesus Christ apart from the gospel. And they're accusing Paul of preaching milk because he's preaching the gospel. And he says, not only am I preaching milk, but I'm also preaching meat because the gospel is both milk and meat. And if you think for one second that you can grow in grace and grow in Jesus Christ apart from the gospel, you are kidding yourself. And he says in Galatians chapter 1, because the Galatian churches were going that route, he says, you're destroying yourself. You're absolutely... You have gone after another gospel, and it's bringing destruction upon your churches because you're rallying, he says, around this stuff over here, and you decided not to rally around this over here. And you've got to stop doing that because it's bringing absolute destruction upon you. He is very strong. Reading the whole book of Galatians, you can read that. It'll take you about six or seven minutes, but the depth of truth that is in there that is applicable and relevant to our lives is absolutely amazing. Absolutely. The gospel is not rules. It's not instructions on how I can live holy and how I can be more acceptable to God. And that's the way the Galatian church was going. Now, we're going to talk this morning about something that the whole world seemingly is extraordinarily interested in, and that is in the, interpre- in the interpretation of Scripture. How do you interpret the Bible? You might say, hey, John, nobody's interested in that outside the church. I beg to differ. You turn on CNN, NBC, ABC, you open up a Time magazine or a Newsweek. I don't have to go to church to hear this question, is homosexuality a sin? And that goes back to biblical interpretation. I don't have to go to church to hear that question. All I got to do is turn on TV. So what I'm telling you is the entire world is very interested in how we interpret the Bible, how you interpret the Bible. And interpretation of the Bible is exactly what we're going to talk about this morning. We're talking about two key factors in helping us to interpret the Bible, which is what 1 Corinthians chapter 2 talks about. And if we get this right, it'll take away needless, needless divisions, needless divisiveness, hurt and pain and rejection that has resulted from that. And for us to do this, we better pray. So here we go. Heavenly Father, please help us. We need you. We absolutely cannot, cannot do anything without you. We cannot understand this. 
We cannot be the people you want us to be apart from you helping us understand what your word says. Please come, Holy Spirit, and guide us into the truth. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Let's take a look at a couple of scripture verses. I got four of them I want you to show, show you this morning, and let's talk about them. Let's see uh, how you feel about them. So the first one is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 1. Here is what it says. It is good for a man not to have sex with a woman. It is good for a man not to have sex with a woman. Well, does that mean that all sex, is Paul saying that all sex is bad or just heterosexual sex is bad? And that only people should only participate in either homosexual sex or no sex at all? Which one is that? It is good for a man not to have sex with a woman. 1 Corinthians 7, 29. Let's see what this one says. Okay. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they have none. One wife said, you know what? My husband never reads the Bible, but I understand he's so biblical. Very biblical. (laughs) Very biblical. Okay. So uh, if you're a Bible-believing husband and you're sitting next to your wife, turn to her and say, baby, from now on, I'm going to be a biblical man. I'm going to live as if you're not my wife. Okay? Go ahead. Say it. (laughs) First Corinthians... 11, verse number 3. Let's check this one out. The head of the woman is the man. Now, I want you to notice this. This doesn't say the head of a wife is a husband. No, no, no. This talks about all men and all women. The head of the woman is a man. It means that the man is in charge. Amen. Hallelujah. The head of the woman is the man. So if you're a woman and you're, 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 if you're a Bible believing woman, if you're a church woman, you're into the word of God. If you're that, if that's you this morning, you turn to any man that's next to you and say, you're in charge of my life. Go ahead. Do that. I'll give you a second to do that. In the first service, for some reason, at this point, people just started saying the title of the message today all over the place. I do wild. Okay, just one last one. I hope you'll appreciate this biblical, very biblical verse. First Corinthians, right there. Okay. You, you're causing a problem. Okay. Women should remain silent in church. So actually what I just did in asking the women to speak to the men next time was absolutely anti-biblical and was wrong. So we should remind women shouldn't preach. So some of you men are seeing this. Some of your husbands are seeing this. You know what? I want to hang out in church more often. Uh, what's up with these verses? What, what is the deal with these verses? How do we understand them? Well, here's what I want you to write down. Look, context is king. Right? That is so, it's really important. Context, context, context. You've got to understand the context. You can't just parachute into a verse and not understand its context and say, okay, I'm going to build a whole belief system and a doctrine and I understand my theology and I'm going to tell people, whoa, man, the man is the head and the woman should stay silent and, you know, sex, don't have sex, all this kind of... You can't parachute and do that. You have to understand its context. To avoid needless divisions and pain, you have to understand context. It's very important to be accurate in the interpretation of Scripture to do this. So I want to tell you a quick story. A number of months ago, my wonderful mother-in-law visited me at my house. She came walking in into our kitchen, and she had this incredible arrangement of roses. I mean, I have never in my life seen roses look that beautiful. And it, it so struck me when I saw them. She put them there on the counter. I said, oh, my, my goodness. Those are, those are awesome. Where did you get this? Where, what, what florist did this? I've got to know because I'm going to use this in the future. Who put together this incredible arrangement? She said, Cherrydale Safeway. 
You all know the Cherrydale Safeway down on Lee Highway, the Cherrydale Safeway, the florist at Cherrydale Safeway. I said, oh my goodness. She said, my florist's name is Foo. Then she said, F you. <laughs> I said, excuse me? What, what did you say? And she said, F you. There's no clue what she's doing at all. And I had this puzzled look on my face. And then she wound up, and you know she wound up, like people of only a certain age can do this. Do you follow what I'm saying? When they think that if they say something loudly enough and they articulate distinctly enough, they can force anybody to understand the English language. It doesn't matter. They've never heard English before in their life. They can force the meaning, understanding of words into your head. She wound up a really big one, and she just gets, leans in, and she says, F you. <laughs> now, I want to ask you, if you had walked in at that moment, if you had walked in at that moment, would you have known we're talking about the florist at Cherrydale Safeway? Would you have any idea that we're talking about the florist at Cherrydale? No, you wouldn't. You would, you'd be clueless because you wouldn't understand the context and what it was said. Now, that's what's happening when we're parachuting into these verses that have caused a tremendous amount of hurt and pain. Do you realize that the Apostle Paul wrote four or five different letters to the church in Corinth? Did you know that? We have two. He wrote four or five. It's an ongoing conversation. It's an ongoing relationship. Do you realize that they were writing letters to him and he was answering back? And we have none of those letters. We, have none. we don't have their portion of the conversation. So when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse number 1, it is good for a man not to have sex with a woman, is, he, is that his words? Is he stating it? Or is he restating a question that they have asked him? Oh, wait a minute. That changes everything, doesn't it? You understand in a city that's filled with all kinds of Sex, just, just, just sex all over the place. We, we, made, we established that last week, all right? You realize in a city like that where people are saying, man, have sex with anything. If it moves, have sex with it. That was kind of the opinion. You realize in a city like that that you have people that polarize towards sex with everything and people that come way over here to the other side and say, don't have sex at all. And then more than likely, they were asking him a question, should we just not have sex at all? Oh, and there were a number of people in that polarizing movement that it spread there at the tail end of the New Testament in the first couple hundred years of the church. They said, okay, sex is just completely bad. And the best thing to do is just live a completely celibate life. And an early church father by the name of Origen decided that that clueless of the context, void of the context, didn't pay attention to context, looked at that one verse and said, okay, well, I understand this. I'm going to castrate myself. And that's what he did. Now, he realized later on in life he made a mistake. That's not like something that you can correct, okay? We, this guy now has a problem really bad to be origin. So you have tremendous pain has come into people's lives because of the lack of context. Context is king. You have to pay attention. You have to consider history, language, culture, and ongoing relationship, and ongoing conversation to avoid needless abuse, hurt, and pain. Now, there's something even more important than context. Context is king. Any great Bible interpreter tell you that. There's one thing that's even more important than that, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you could write this one down. If context is king, if context is king, then the gospel of Jesus Christ is the king of kings because it's Jesus. And we interpret every scripture through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we don't interpret it through that lens, we mess up its interpretation. And we do something with the text that was never meant in the first place. 
What we are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that is so critically important to our understanding today, I cannot overemphasize it enough. Paul sets everything up great in chapter 1. He gets into the meat, gets very technical in chapter 2. This might get a little... This might get a little deep for a second, but we really have to think about this because our beliefs play a role in these divisive issues. So we have to get our beliefs right according to what Paul is saying here in chapter 2. He is saying we cannot understand the Bible apart from the gospel. Okay, do you believe that? Do you believe what Paul is saying here? I can't. In your own wisdom and all the smarts, you know, that you have, you're so smart, you do you think that you can understand it apart from the gospel, which means you're apart from the Holy Spirit? Do you think that you can understand the meaning of the text all by yourself? And Paul says, absolutely not. So let's read it. I want to read verses 6 through 12 because he states this case very clearly. Just listen to what he says. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature. Now, why does he say mature there? Because they were saying, Paul, your message is immature. The gospel of Jesus Christ is milk. We've left that behind. We don't need that anymore. Let's go on to maturity. Your message, Paul, is immature. Okay? He says, we do speak a message among the church, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. Who are coming to what? I'm coming to nothing. Absolutely nothing. No. We speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age did what? Understood it. There's confusion about it. Why? Because they didn't look at it through the gospel. They did not look at it through the gospel, and there was a lack of understanding because they didn't have the Spirit. For if they had, they would, have not been crucif- they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as is written, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has done what? He's revealed it to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? Let me tell you what he's doing here. He's using a Greek philosophical argument that like understands like. It's their context. They would have understood it. In other words, a man can understand a man, but a man can't understand God unless the man has the spirit of God within him. Does that make sense? Like understands like. So he's using their context and helping them to understand, I can't understand the Bible unless I have the spirit, and I don't have the spirit unless I've believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if I exchange the gospel for moral behavior or behavioral modification or the rules of the law, I have fallen back under a curse. And instead of what I need to do is I need to rally over here around the gospel. That is the only way I have the Holy Spirit and the only way I understand what the Bible is saying in the first place. Here's his argument. This is what he's laying out for us in very technical language. It's quite deep. So he concludes by saying, In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, then what does he say, Hazen? That we may understand what God has freely given. Not what we have earned, not what we have earned, but what God has freely given us. We can understand that, what God has freely given us. I want to go through a couple of verses in the beginning of this, and then we're going to try to show you something up here on the stage in just a minute. Verse number one of chapter two, Paul says this. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom. This is very important. Many great orators, speakers, would come to the city of Corinth, and they were applauded. They have whole teams of people with follow them around, and they would applaud us. Oh, man, that's awesome. That's awesome. And he says they came with eloquence, and the word eloquence means lofty words. And what that means is it was words that subtle as they might be, as subtle as they might be, lifted up and made the speaker feel superior about himself, and anybody who bought into their message feels superior about themselves, thereby making other people 
inferior to them. That makes sense? And this is what he's saying when I... So he says, eloquence and superior wisdom. So the message many times that was happening in Corinth is that people would come and there was this difference, this was this division between people who are superior, people who are inferior. Now, what Paul's saying is this happens in the church. What he's saying is that some churches, some, some churches, their whole doctrine is based on making people who follow the rules feel superior to people who don't follow the rules, and Paul says that's not the gospel. What he's saying is that some churches grow by simply saying, hey guys, we're the superior ones, everybody flock in, let's look down on the people who are inferior. And he says that's not the gospel. This is the case that he's making right here. That's how we have to go back to the gospel. The gospel does not make anyone feel superior. Please write that in. The gospel never makes you feel superior, and this is the way the New Testament churches were going. Verse number two. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is our theme verse. We talked so much about this last week. Rally not around these issues over here, but rally around this one thing over here, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, our theme verse. God's way, in God's opinion, the way to change the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ, not moral reformation. Paul walks into a city filled with tremendous immorality, and he says, you know what? For 18 months, the only thing I'm going to talk about is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what would somebody do if they walked into Corinth today? The normal human wisdom thing to walk in is to start yelling and screaming, hellfire, damnation, because of all the immorality, and Paul doesn't do that. We should stand up and say, what is that all about? God's opinion is the way to change the world, his way to change the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ, not, calling, not talking about hellfire and brimstone because people aren't following the rules. This is what Paul is saying. I'm talking to somebody recently, and they're telling me that the United States of America is under judgment. It's under judgment. We're under a curse. We're under judgment. Chris and I received a, a robocall this past week from some Christian organization that was telling us we need to participate in a conference call because America is so severely under judgment. We're under judgment because people are doing all these things over here, okay? And the person that I talked to recently, a real big-time Bible person, they really know the Bible, they said, why are we under judgment? Why are we under curse? Why, why is America going to hell in a handbasket? And they said, well, we, you know, obviously because these things, these things right over here. And what I want to say to you is that if you don't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the problem with our world is always somebody else. If you don't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the problem with our world is always somebody else. Uh, we have problems, we're under curse, we're going to go to hell, and it's, all, it's because of these people over here doing those things, that's our problem. And it's never about you. You're never the problem. I'm never the problem. Because I'm, I'm, a, good, I'm a goody two-shoe pastor. It's not my problem. It's somebody else. And that's if I don't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when I, when I, when I understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, when I'm into the gospel of Jesus Christ... I understand that the problem isn't outside of me. The problem is not in moral reformation. The problem is understanding where true righteousness is found. Right? The answer is not moral reform, which is why Paul came into Corinth and didn't preach moral reform. Because moral reform always leads, listen, to superiority. And superiority always leads to persecution. That's history. Not church history. That's just history, isn't it? When some group of people feel superior, what eventually happens is they persecute. Oh, we don't have to look anywhere past Hitler or things that have happened right here in the United States of America. When you feel superior, you persecute. And if you don't believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have to feel superior. When you rally around this over here, you must, everybody. And 
somebody's saying, no, no, John, that's the case. I would never feel superior. Ah, come on. Yes, you do. If you rally around this stuff over here, you must, unless you all by yourself is different from everybody else in the history of the world and the history of the Bible, unless you are the lone person that's different, that you can rally around this and say, yeah, but I don't feel superior. We just want to, we want to have a coffee with you sometime so badly just to learn so much. But when you rally around this stuff over here and you think that that is the way to get close to God and your righteousness is based on this, you must absolutely feel superior. That's just the way it goes. And when you feel superior, then you end up persecuting. All right. So as the story goes, G.K. Chesterton, who was a writer, British guy, you know how we feel about the Brits around here especially with Derek and all that stuff, but a uh, British guy, you know, 100 or so years ago, writer, sometimes theologian. The London Times wrote out many, many years ago, they said, hey, to all these writers and philosophers and stuff like this, they said, what's wrong with this world? And Chesterton wrote back a simple response. He said, I am. I am. Now, if you don't believe in the gospel, you'll never say that. You'll just say, yes, I'll tell you what's wrong with the world. We're, we're going to hell in a handbasket. We're under a curse because all these people over here are doing this stuff. But if you believe in the gospel of Christ, you'll say, you know, I know what's wrong with the world. I am. I'm what's wrong with this world. And my issue is I just need to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and claim the righteousness of Jesus, not my own righteousness. Second Chronicles 7.14, very well-known verse. Look how it starts and ends. Just look how it starts and ends. All right, the ending of it is the land needs healing. Where does it start? Where does the healing of the land start? If my people... <laughs> if you feel like you're a person of God... Quit looking at people who are doing all this stuff over here and think that that is the answer to a spiritual awakening and revival in our land and the healing of our land because, scripturally speaking, it is not. Scripturally speaking, the issue is, is with us and us as a church truly believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ and not just saying, oh, yeah, I know the gospel. Yep, you believe it. It's good, good. Now let's talk about sinners. That's not the thing. The thing is to talk about the gospel of Christ. Look at this. Galatians 3.10. Galatians, the whole book, you should read it. Take you 10 minutes. It's phenomenal. It's absolutely phenomenal. It's all about this stuff. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. You know what that's saying, everybody? It's saying that if I'm rallying around this, you do, real, we've talked about this, the whole world thinks that the Christian church in the United States of America is all a bunch of list of rules of do's and don'ts, which means that we're way off message. We, we talked about that last week. If this is how I become righteous and holy by avoiding these things or whatever I want to do, what the Bible says, I'm actually have fallen under a curse. Now, how is that possible? I mean, I was doing all this over here so that I could live a free life. Man, I mean, me and Jesus, we're just great. And Paul says clearly in the scripture, no, actually, you're under a curse. Because you put all your energy and effort around these things over here, which is all going to burn up, instead of this over here, which is Jesus plus nothing. So here's how it goes. If I am relying on moral performance to make me acceptable to God, here's how, here's how the reasoning goes. Number one, if I'm doing that, if I'm doing that, relying on moral performance, number one, that means this. I obey God, therefore God loves me and accepts me. Okay? If I say it's really about my moral performance, right? That means, number one, I obey God, therefore God loves and accepts me. And if God loves and accepts me, point number two is this. There are those people, the Bible says, that are saved and are unsaved. There are those that are saved and unsaved. So that leads me to point number three. That means I am superior to some people. And my superiority leads me to persecute those other people. This is what I do. Persecute these other people because of my belief. 
I don't believe in the gospel, therefore I feel superior. The story of the Bible is that we rely on our obedience and our moral performance, and when we do that, we feel superior. Now let's, let's do this thing again about the unchristian. We had it last week, let's put it up there again, okay? So, <clears throat> a big study was done, uh, people ages 16 to 29, what are the three most common perceptions? I want to draw your attention to the top two, they said at 91 and 87%. So what is the Christian church all about? Well, it's easy. And I told you last week, I get no phone calls about Jesus Christ. I only get one phone call. I, don't, I want to come to your church. I don't care what you think about Jesus or the Bible. I just want to know what you think about homosexuality. Hey, look, makes the Christian church is known for homosexuality. It's not known for Jesus anymore. That's a problem. That's a problem. Uh, number two, judgmental. Now, people who are judgmental would never say they're judgmental, right? Hey, I'm a judgmental person. Nobody's going to do that, right? It's very subtle. It's very subtle. And what really is being said here, because I've talked to people who say, I can't stand it, and people are judgmental. You know what they're really saying? There's an air of, here comes the word again, superiority. What is driving that superiority? This is. I don't do this. I don't do this. Therefore, I must be superior. And if you believed in the gospel is Jesus plus nothing, is only, only Jesus Christ, you would never feel, you could, the gospel would never make you feel superior. But we, we feel that way, we don't even know. This is the problem with the Galatian churches. This is why Paul was going nuts with the churches in Galatia. Peter, Peter, Peter is the leader of the disciples, everybody. He spent three years with Jesus Christ, and when Jesus Christ left, he said, look, Peter, you're going to lead the troops, man. You're going to lead the troops. And 20 years after Jesus Christ is gone, sends to heaven, there's Peter leading the troops. And you know what, Paul? Paul, Peter falls away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. He goes into moral performance, and the apostle Paul blisters the guy in the book of Galatians. I got up in his face. I let him have it. If you're here today, you've been in church a long time, you're a big Bible-believing person, and I ask you a question, do you know what the gospel of Jesus, do you believe in the gospel? You say, oh man, I know what the gospel is. Come on, let's talk about something else. Let's not spend our time on that. You have no clue what the gospel means. You have no clue. You have no clue of it in your life. If I ask you, you know what the gospel of Jesus Christ you know what? And, you say, and I say, do you know what the gospel of Jesus Christ means? And you say to me, you know what? I am just continuing to wrestle and struggle with that whole subject. You, my friend, are starting to get a clue of what the gospel of Jesus Christ means. Struggle with the gospel. Falling away. Now, I want to say one thing about this slide back here. Can we think about this for a second? Is it not true that in the United States of America, if we want to find a church that's deep, spiritually deep, a real, you know what I'm saying? A real Bible-believing church, everybody. One that really stands on the word. Isn't that it? Isn't that it? Isn't that the church that comes across with an air of spirit? Hey, I'm not afraid to call sin, sin. I remember being with the pastor not too long ago, saying just as arrogant as could be, he was saying, so many of these pastors are afraid to preach against sin. We need to preach against sin. Oh, well, God bless you, brother. You go ahead and preach against sin. That's totally anti-biblical, but you do it. You do it. So we look at these churches. Oh, well, it's the churches that make the strong stand against homosexuality and the strong stand against moral behavior. We say, well, those are the true churches. Those are the deep churches in the United States of America. Have we inverted something massively? What is really makes, what really is a deep church? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, what really makes for a deep church is a church that is really rallied around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Context, gospel, helps us understand the true meaning behind the scriptures. Extremely important. 
the lack of that understanding has caused tremendous divisiveness and pain, needless pain in our world. God's not behind it. Our lack of embracing of the gospel, what's behind it. What we learn is that in New Testament churches, all across the New Testament, there was a tendency to slide away from the gospel. Let me read you Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. So here's the Galatians. Remember, this is a whole region called Galatia, and Paul is writing to a whole group of churches. Thirty-so years after Jesus Christ has ascended to heaven, just thirty short years. And he says, you foolish Galatians. Yeah, he's a little bit ticked off, everybody. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before your very eyes? Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. That's the gospel. He took his place. He rescued us. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Did the Holy Spirit come into your life because you obeyed all this stuff over here? He said, or by believing what you have heard. Are you so foolish after beginning by the means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by the means of the flesh? Which way is it? Christianity is not about obeying the rules. Verse number 3, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Last point I want to make about this. Very important. Paul says, I came to you in weakness. What does that mean? I came to you in weakness. If I say to you this morning as a pastor, look, it's Jesus plus nothing. There's nothing for you to do to make yourself acceptable before God but claim the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You don't have to do all these rules over here. That is a very weak message. That is a message that uh, early on in my ministry, I would have been scared to death to say. You know why? Because I've lost complete control of you. Total control. How can I manipulate you if I, if I don't have that leverage? How can I guilt you unless I don't have, if I don't have that leverage? Now I can't make you do anything. I can't manipulate. I can't control. I can't guilt you. Preachers love to make you feel guilty. That's how we get you to do anything, right? But I've lost total control, and it's a weak message. And what they were saying to Paul, this is so weak, man. Don't bring that weak stuff in here. Don't bring that milk in here. Let's get the word. Let's go deep. Let's go deep. Let's call sin, sin. Let's call it out, brother. Breathe nails. I mean, spit nails. Whatever you got to do, man. Light us up, baby. That's what the deep churches do. I just want you to think about this. I just want you to think. I want you to wrestle with what the Scripture is saying here. We used to sing a hymn in church. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. Jesus paid it all. He didn't pay a portion of it. paid it all. There's nothing for me to pay. We sang it, and then we didn't believe it. We did not believe it. Some of you, for the first time, you're saying, man, I've never heard this. <laughs> what are you talking about? I've, never, I've been in church all my life. I've never heard this. Isn't that amazing, everybody? This is the central, the first, and the last, and the most important doctrine of the Christian church. And how many of us would raise our hands right now if I asked you and say, you know what, I had never heard this. I had never heard this. This is the most important doctrine of the Christian church. It's Jesus Christ and it's right. So write this one in. The gospel is 100% Jesus and 0% you and me. 100% Jesus, 0%. That's the gospel. There it is. There you go. Read Romans. It's not one verse, it's not two. It's the entire first five or six chapters in Romans. Read the book of Corinthians. Read the book of Galatians. If you think I'm pulling this out of a hat somewhere, it's what most of the New Testament is about. 
There is a righteousness that is apart from the law. I gave you about five or six verses that said the exact same thing last week over and over again. There's righteousness that's apart from the law, apart from obedience, apart from doing all those things. Romans 5 says this. One act, Adam and Eve in the garden, one act, one sin, got us into the mess. And then it says what? One act will get us out. Oh man, I want to get right with Jesus Christ. I want to get right with Jesus. Well, you got to do this and this and this and this and this and this to get right with Jesus Christ. Well, the Bible says, no, you don't. You got to do one thing. Claim and believe in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. One act. One act in, one act out. That is what the Bible says. When we say, right, that it's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, what happens is, the net result of that is, is that fear melts away. Oh, man, I don't have to fear judgment anymore. you telling me I claim the righteousness of Christ and I stop worrying about this stuff? Then all of a sudden, the fear of wrath and the judgment of God just begins to melt away. Now, what's the immediate reaction to that then, if the, if the wrath of God begins to melt away? I, I tell you, my reaction to it and the reaction of many people that I've talked to about this is this. Where's the incentive then? I've lost all my incentive to live that good Christian life. I mean, why am I going to church and why am I praying and why am I even trying to avoid these things? I have no incentive. I'm going to do everything because all the fear of wrath has gone away. Yeah, you're right. You're right. All the fear of wrath. Now, why is that a problem? that all the fear has gone away. If my incentive, everybody, listen, if my incentive for my relationship with Jesus Christ is fear, that's my incentive, my relationship with Christ is fear, then I do not have a genuine relationship with God. Genuine relationships are built on love. False relationships are built on fear. Genuine relationships with Jesus Christ are built on love. False relationships are built on on fear. And if you, mean, if you say to me, okay, you take, the, you take that concept of fear away, you pull that completely away, and I just go and do whatever I want, my question is, did you ever have a genuine relationship with God in the first place? It's built on love. It's not built on fear. Now we're going to pull this thing full circle, and we're going to use, in the last 10 minutes, we're going to use a very important scripture in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to talk about something that goes on in church all the time and that possibly has been severely misinterpreted. I want to talk about communion. All right? So let's make this really practical. Let's talk about communion this morning. The Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. Let's just have, we're not going to have communion today. We're going to have it next week, but let's get ready for it. And let's possibly... Right? I'm not God. I'm not saying I'm God. I'm not claiming to be God. I'm not claiming that I'm, because what I'm getting ready to tell you, you can say, whoa, wait a minute, man. This is where we're pushing Christians. Remember, sometimes we stretch non-church people, and sometimes we stretch church people. Church people, here it comes. Brace yourself. Here it comes. And do a little stretching. All right, so what I did this past week is I just Googled who can take communion. And what I pulled off is off of two major websites, very well-known, world-famous churches, not just known in the United States of America, but known all around the world and known to be very deep biblical churches, very, very hardcore, deep, deep churches, world-famous churches. Here's what it says. Quote, why communion isn't for everyone? Communion can be dangerous. Did you know that you could drink judgment upon yourself if you're not careful? Communion is a sacrament only to be performed by Christians. Non-Christians should never take communion. As the Bible warns that those who take communion in an unworthy manner will be guilty of disrespecting Jesus and bringing judgment upon themselves, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 29. God gives clear instructions in the book, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, about communion, end of quote. Next website. These are my top two. 
Okay, the next website, it lists a number of sins that disqualify you from taking communion. So if you're going to come next week, you might want to write all these down, okay? <laughs> disqualify you taking communion. So murder. If you're murdering people, uh, we'd rather you not take communion. All right. Uh, abortion, homosexuality, fornication, divorce, and then one final one, impure thoughts, and they cite Romans 5.28 on that. Now, that's pretty simple. Romans 5, you all know what that means, Romans 5, what it says, Romans 5.20. It says, any man who looks lustfully at another woman uh, is disqualified from taking communion if you look lustfully at a woman. Thank, thank the Lord that uh, no men really, there's very few men that have a problem with that. Uh, <laughs> So almost every guy in this room is completely qualified on that basis to take communion, right? Okay. <clears throat> now, uh, does any of that sound familiar, what I've just gone through about who can take communion, who can't take communion? You know, if you're not a Christian, you're drinking judgment. But does it, I, want, I didn't do this at first, but raise your hand. Has anybody ever heard this before? Has anybody in this room ever heard this kind of language before? Okay, maybe half of us in this room uh, have heard that language before, who can and cannot. So I'm going to do just a quick demonstration. Uh, I've got a couple guys going to jump up on the stage uh, with me uh, real quick that's going to help me do this. Over here, I've got four guys. Easy, easy, easy bit. Whoa! You're ready to mess the whole sermon up. You're going to fall down, break your neck. We have a problem. And I'm going to have to pull somebody else up. Okay. <clears throat> so we're, if we just real quick, they're going to just help me do something. So here we got four guys. You look at them. You can tell which ones are the Christians and which ones aren't the Christians. You can tell by looking at them. You can tell by looking at them which ones have sin in their life and which ones don't have sin in their life. Okay. So obviously these guys are sinners and they're not Christians. You can tell that by looking at them. Everybody knows what you guys are up to and it's discussed every single one of them. So these two guys are going to step over here. Here's the Christians. These guys are qualified. They've earned a seat. They've earned a seat at the communion table. These guys have. And so we get to celebrate communion. So if we'll step back over here, uh, you just sit on the floor. So we come over here, and, and, and they're over there while we're, ta- we're participating in this meal. And, and, you know, Jesus is so good. Any brothers? Okay. And we, we participate in communion. So uh, I'm going to put us on hold for just one second. I've got all this food here because this is important. So hold what you got. You hold what you got. You guys just look sinful over there. We'll get back to you in a moment. I want to tell you four things. We're going to use context, and we're going to use gospel to interpret 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're unfamiliar with it, please go back at another point and read the chapter. Number one thing that you need to know is communion is a meal. Number one is communion is is a meal. I know we take a wafer and a little thumb, thumb, thumbnail, thumb, thimble, thimble. We take a little thimble of like grape juice, wine, whatever the heck, right? We, we do that. And that's communion us today. That wasn't the case back then. This is the reason I have all this food over here, right? I got watermelons and apples and bananas and bread and there's corn in here. I should have thrown a steak in here, whatever. But it's a whole blown meal. You know why? Because Paul says, you know, some of you are getting just gorging yourself. You're drunk on food. Well, that's really hard to do with those little paper thin wafers, right? You have to be here for five years to stuff yourself with that. It's almost like a piece of air. It was a meal. I want you to know, think of it. It's a meal. It's a whole full-blown, massive meal. It's not a wafer and the little uh, thimble thing, right? First thing. Second thing is, we, we just read to you a second ago, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, gives us clear, this is what it says, gives us clear, many people say, gives us clear instruction on communion. Is that, is that what we, do we get 
clear instruction on communion? Is that the purpose? Contextually, is that the purpose, church people, of 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Is that clear instruction on communion? Because it says in 1 Corinthians 11.22, it says that these guys over here who are like pigging out, they're just chowing down. It says they here, these people taking communion, they're worthy, they've earned a seat at the table, are humiliating these people over here ruthlessly. It says the people over here taking communion are humiliating, and Paul is very angry about that. How dare you do that? And it says these people over here are drinking judgment on themselves because they're humiliating, because they're over here stinking full of food, and these guys over here have nothing. I I just, I'm at a loss. How did we make this about Christians and non-Christians? More than likely, both these parties are, 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 are Christians. And these guys feel superior to these inferior slugs over here. And because of that, they're humiliating them and they're persecuting them. Why? Because they're superior. They deserve it. They get it. That's what it seems to be out. Verse 21 says, one is hungry, the other is drunk. Contextually, one group is humiliating another group, and that should not be done in the Lord's Supper. That's the second thing I need you to know. Here's the third thing. Who was there at the meal? I want to ask you a question. Don't raise your hand. Is every single person in this room, every person in this auditorium, is every single person in this auditorium a Christian? Do every single one of you believe in Jesus Christ? The answer is no. What we know from the research that we've done at Grace Community Church is at least 20 to 30% of you in this room are not followers of Jesus Christ. And the reason I tell you that statistic is because in the church of Corinth, not everybody that was in the room was a Christian. You realize that people who are not believers in Jesus Christ, who are not followers of the Ten Commandments and all this kind of stuff over here, love to flock to be around Jesus. Like, actually, I'm not sure that anybody was any more spiritually deep than Jesus that has ever walked this planet. That's just an assumption that I have. He's the deepest spiritual person that we have in the Bible. That's just an assumption I have. And for some reason, non-churched people just flooded his church services. Absolutely flooded. Love to be around him. My point is this, is that in the church of Corinth, surely, surely there were non-churched people, non-followers, non-Christians, non-believers. Did I say that enough different ways? That were in those church services. That's just how it rolled. And they were having a meal. They were having a meal. Now, think. In that culture, in that culture, in Greece, 2,000 years ago, built on hospitality, Was it culturally acceptable to have a massive meal and these wonderful Christian godly spiritual people would say to you slugs over there, you cannot participate in the meal with us. You just sit there while we feast. Everybody, it's inconceivable. In that culture, you didn't do it. If they did that over here, if they did that over here, tremendous shame. It's a hospitality of culture. It's a cultural, it's hospital. That's what, it was unthinkable, unthinkable that they would say, you can't participate in this meal with us. Would never dream of doing that. Fourth and final point. Your salvation and your spiritual growth. Ready? This is so important to understand the gospel. Is it mainly about you and what you do? Or is it about Jesus Christ and what he's done? This will tell you everything right here. This will interpret communion for you. This will interpret whether or not you really believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Very simple question. Is it mainly about you and what you do, or is it mainly about Jesus Christ and what he has already done? Good news, something that's already happened. Which one is it about? This is a moment in time where, where, where we are not reflecting on our qualifications that entitle us to a seat at this table. It is a, it is a moment in time where we're thinking about the qualifications of Jesus Christ. I want you to think back to the first communion service. We hear about communion in 1 Corinthians 11, and the only other places we really hear about it is in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now let's think for a second. Who's taking communion in that? Jesus is serving communion, right? He's serving communion. Now, <clears throat> he puts a towel, he, he, and he washes their feet, and then he serves them communion. And he goes up to Judas, good old Christian Judas, wonderful, godly, faithful, <laughs> believing Judas. Oh, he loves Jesus. And he's so faithful to Jesus. It's wonderful. And he says, you know, Judas, please, please, I want to serve you communion. And then Judas goes out and betrays him. Makes you wonder if Jesus has any clue what he's doing. Okay? And some of you really know your Bible. And you're like, yeah, there's a little bit of controversy whether or not Judas was at the Last Supper or not. Okay, I'll give you that. Those of you who really know your Bible really well, you understand there's a controversy. We're split on that, so let's move on to somebody else. Peter. Look at him. He's the epitome of belief. He has earned a right to sit at this table by his qualifications. He's the leader of all the disciples. He is a wonderful, godly Christian man. And Jesus stands here serving him communion. And a couple hours from now, he'll be yelling, screaming, cursing, profaning, calling down curses on himself, swearing, swearing that he doesn't even know who Jesus Christ is. And Jesus Christ stands here serving him communion. And it makes me wonder, why would Jesus make Peter, force Peter to drink judgment upon himself? Why would he do that? Shame on Jesus for doing that. Communion, everybody, is a meal. It's a banquet. And the, the guest of honor at the banquet is Jesus Christ. It's a moment in time where we don't come and we consider all of my sins. Now, 1 Corinthians 11 says, yeah, don't take it in an unworthy manner. Okay. You know, if these guys over here are humiliating these guys over here, well, then doggone it, yes. <laughs> That's an unworthy manner. But... It's not a moment where we think about, oh, you know, I'm a sinner and I want to look at all my sins. This is not a moment for you to look at all your sins. This is a moment for you to look up to Jesus Christ and think about his righteousness. Don't take the spotlight off of Jesus and put it on you. It's not a moment for you to take the spotlight off of Jesus and put it on you and think about your sins or think about somebody, oh, look at that person taking communion. That's not that moment. This is a moment to honor Jesus Christ. This is a moment to sing his praises and his righteousness, and to look at him. My question is this. Have we taken this very important portion of Scripture and something that is done in churches around the world and completely inverted, inverted its meaning? Because as I read the text, the only people who are drinking damnation on themselves are these people who feel so qualified to sit at the table. And these people over here who feel completely disqualified to sit at the table are the ones who should be taking communion. If you feel qualified to take communion today, you probably should not take it. But if you feel disqualified to take communion, your only qualification is that you feel disqualified. Does that make sense? 
There is the gospel of Jesus Christ, everybody. There, my friends, is the gospel. And if you'll wrap yourself around the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will free you from a curse. It'll help you to grow spiritually. And a power of God will come into your life like you've never known before. Be like a bomb has gone off in your life because the Holy Spirit comes when you believe and rally around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 1.16, this is a very well-known verse, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, have you ever thought about that? Why did he use the word ashamed? I mean, we think about, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power to salvation. I think about gospel, I think about power. I never thought about ashamed. You know why he says ashamed? Because a lot of people going around saying, shame on you, Paul. Shame on you. Shame on you for not focusing on these things right over here and instead focusing on that weak mess that you're bringing in here, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Shame on on you. My friends, the church of Jesus Christ is not about these issues over here. I'm happy. We're going to have a Q&A one of these days, not today. I'm happy to sit and go through the scriptures with all of you and try to build a case. The church of Jesus Christ, the first and most important doctrine that we have, and we are not Christians unless we believe in it, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is Jesus plus nothing. One act got us in and one act gets us out, and we should rally around the gospel of Jesus Christ because when we do, a power comes in our life. Next week, I want to talk about power. Where does power come from? Paul says power can come into our life when we believe on the gospel, and it's so powerful it absolutely will blow your mind. Let me conclude by saying this. Some of you, for the first time, are starting to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've never heard it before. And here's what I know. When the gospel of Jesus Christ is talked about, the Holy Spirit begins to come and begins to do some things in people's hearts and lives. And some of your hearts are just like, whoa. You're feeling, you're feeling something happen inside of you, and that's the Spirit of God saying, come on with me on this. Don't fight it. We have wonderful people right over here on our prayer wall that have been praying all summer for this very moment that people would stop claiming their own righteousness and instead claim the righteousness of Jesus Christ and believe in Jesus. I want to ask you this morning, rather than just ending and getting up and going out and eating your brunch or buffet or whatever, anything like that, to do the most important thing you could ever do in your life, and that is, is to go ahead and surrender to the righteousness of Jesus Christ and to stop trying to be righteous in yourself. A power will fill your life like no power you have ever known before. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, so much for your word. I thank you, God, for how powerful it is. I thank you, Lord, that it is a wisdom that goes beyond me, goes way beyond me. I thank you, God, I could have never thought this up. It is absolutely phenomenal. Lord, bless every single person right now who is making the decision whether or not to follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit and to claim the righteousness of Jesus Christ and not to try to save themselves. Help every single one of us just to allow ourselves to fully go with where you're leading us and to place our faith in Jesus Christ as our rescuer who paid it all. I thank you, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. We're going to end right here. I thank you for coming today. If you're new to Grace, you're relatively new, right over here. In two minutes and 53 seconds, Grace in five, everything you need to know about this church in five minutes or less. God bless you. Thanks for coming.